So I would like to encourage you to uh, turn to that chapter, and we'll begin reading with verse 6, Joshua 14, 6. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day Moses swore to me, The land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but perhaps the Lord will help me and I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then the land had rest from war. Now just to sketch in a little bit of background so you know the setting of this uh, chapter in the book of Joshua. The uh, Israelites had just been through a long and bloody conflict in which they had eventually, under Joshua's leadership, broken the uh, back of Canaanite resistance. They had conquered the major Canaanite city-states. And uh, now Joshua gathers all of the tribes to give their, uh, them inherit uh, their inheritance. It was a sort of mopping-up operation where each of the tribes under local tribal leadership would then uh, possess their inheritance. And uh, Judah, because it was the princely tribe, the first tribe, uh, comes first to receive their portion of the land. And uh, among them is Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now the question I'm sure you would raise as you read through this passage for the first time is, who in the world is this old uh, gentleman? What right does he have to push to the front of the crowd and demand his inheritance before anyone else? Well, there are a number of things that need to be said about this old warrior. In the first place, he is not an Israelite. He's said to be the son of Jephunneh, who was a Kenizzite. The Kenizzites were distant relatives of Israel, but uh, related through Esau, Jacob's brother. And uh, so Caleb was not in the main line of promise. He wasn't part of the uh, covenant people. He was somewhat related to uh, Jacob through his brother, but he wasn't a part of the line of promise that ran from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to the 12 tribes. So he was an outsider. In Old Testament parlance, he would be a Gentile. The second thing about Caleb is that he apparently was not highly regarded by his family because his name in Hebrew and in every other Semitic language means dog, Kalev. And uh, dogs were not pets in those days. They were uh, scavengers and mischief makers and, and not very... Uh, highly regarded. So it makes you wonder what sort of child this was that uh, parents would saddle with a name like dog. That's worse than naming your son Sue. 
It reminds me of the fellow who called his infant son Theophilus because he said when he saw him the first time, that's Theophilus-looking kid I ever saw in my life. And we don't know anything about Caleb's appearance, but apparently he he wasn't uh, much to look at and uh, not highly regarded. He was outside, so he was both a national and a family reject. But uh, in piecing everything together in his story, going to the geneal- genealogies in, uh, in First Chronicles, you learn that he was adopted into the tribe of Judah by the family of Hezron. So he had a family. He was included. And also he, he became a legendary hero and leader in that tribe. Now, in order to get some additional background, on Caleb, let's turn back to the book of Numbers, chapter 13, to the story of the expedition that Moses sent into the land to spy out uh, Canaan. This uh, is after the march from uh, Mount Horeb, or Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, and Israel gathered at the gates of the uh, land of Canaan, ready to invade. But uh, before they entered the land, Moses sent an expeditionary force, a small group of spies, into the land to reconnoiter. And in Numbers 13, verse 1, we read that the Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, All of them were leaders of the Israelites, so that fact is underscored. These are their names, and then what follows are a number of of unpronounceable names. But uh, there are two that are notable. In verse 6, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And in verse 8, Hoshea, the son of Nun, whom we're told in verse 16 was renamed by Moses, Joshua, the son of Nun. So these two... uh, Legendary heroes in Israel's past were included in, w- within this group of spies, Caleb and Joshua. And then in verse 17, uh, we're told that Moses sent them to explore Canaan. And he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. The, the Negev is the southern portion of the Jordan Valley that extends down into Sinai. There's a map included in all the material in your uh, bulletin. If you want to take that out and look at it, you can locate some of these place names. So they were told to go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. That would be the ridge, that the north-south ridge that runs uh, up and down the land of Palestine just to the west of the Jordan Valley. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamat. Uh, Those places are not found on your map because they're uh, uh, the ma- I couldn't find a map that was large enough. Kadesh Barnea, it would be off the bottom of your map to the south, and uh, Lebohemot is way up north off of the top of uh, of the map, a distance of about 250 miles. So this was a very uh, extensive uh, expedition. And for myself, I think that they broke up into either groups of two or they went in solo throughout the land 
in order to see what sort of land it was. And then in verse 22, we're told they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Zoan is Tanis, uh, which would be of interest to those of you who might have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark lately. You know what Tanis is. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and grapes. The Ministry of Tourism in Israel today has as its logo a silhouette of two men carrying a pole over their shoulders with an enormous cluster of grapes. Apparently, the ministry thinks that the spies were the first tourists into the land. And we're told that the place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Now, the focus in this, exped this expedition was Hebron, which was a lovely place. It's pretty today. It was perhaps uh, even more pleasant then. It's the second highest uh, location in the land of uh, Palestine. It was at that time heavily forested. The uh, Turks in the 1800s cut all the trees to fuel their, their trains, and so it's uh, almost barren today. But in those days, it was heavily forested and was Abraham's favorite location. He used to camp there with his, with his family. It's a beautiful spot. But the problem was it was inhabited by the sons of Anak, Three tribes uh, of which are mentioned here, the descendants of Ahiman, Talmai, and Shishai. Uh, these were clans that dwelt in the, uh, on the mountain. And uh, they, were, they were giants of tremendous stature and strength. They had quite a bad uh, reputation. There was a proverbial saying in those days, it's found in Scripture, who is able to stand against an, an Anakite? And uh, they were known by other people in the ancient world. The Moabites called them Imim. That's not the candy that melts in your mouth instead of your hand. The, uh, the word in Moabite means uh, dreadful, horrid, horrible-looking things. They were called by uh, another group of Near Eastern people, the Zamzumim. Uh, that's very much like the word barbarian. The Greeks and Romans called the tribes to the, to the north of them barbarians because they spoke a strange language and they seemed to say, bar, bar, bar. And so they were called barbarians. Well, these people seemed to say, zemzum, zemzum. And so they were called the zemzumim. And they were called uh, nephilim, which comes from a Hebrew, the Hebrew word for abortion, which is uh, probably an indication that they were uh, they had some form of disformity. They were grotesque in their appearance. And uh, they're called the Rephaim, which means uh, spooks, ghosts, spirits of the, of the dead. So when you put all of these terms together, you get the impression of a people characterized by giantism and, and gross uh, disformity, uh, very uh, strong, powerful, fearsome, uh, almost superhuman in their, uh, in their strength. Uh, the, the Canaanites uh, even mention them in their literature outside Scripture. They refer to their, their uh, prowess at uh, drinking wine. Apparently, they were known for their protracted uh, drinking bouts and prodigious amounts of wine that they consumed. 
And the Egyptians tried to put a hex on them. Uh, there are a number of texts called the execration texts that are found inscribed on bowls and figurines that are somewhat like uh, voodoo dolls. They would, they would inscribe the names of their enemies on these, these uh, figurines or on the bowls, and then they would smash them uh, in a form of sympathetic magic, somewhat like sticking pins through voodoo dolls. So apparently even the Egyptians were afraid of them. They were a, a frightful people. The, uh, the Israelites had never seen anything like the sons of Anak. And here they were inhabiting the choice portion of the land. So that when they make their report in verse 26, they begin first with the good news. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And the good news is the land is good. The bad news is the people are bad. And uh, we're not able to conquer them. They mentioned the fortified cities because they had never seen a walled city. There were no, no walled cities in Egypt. They had a, a wall somewhat like the wall of China across the Sinai that protected them, but they didn't wall their cities. And when they first approached these Canaanite cities, they saw these enormous earth-filled walls with sloping exteriors that were plastered over, so they were slick as glass. In fact... Uh, archaeologists used the French term glacé to describe them. They couldn't be climbed or breached by war machines. Furthermore, the uh, Israelites were not warlike. They'd never been trained in war. They'd been shepherds all of their lives. And now they're confronted with these impregnable fortresses manned by enormous giants. And uh, they felt that they had no chance whatever to take the land. And so they... Uh, they're ready to turn back. And then we read in verse 30, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We shall go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. It's interesting to me here that it's Caleb and not Joshua who speaks. Apparently Joshua was encouraged by Caleb. He was encouraged by Caleb's faith, but it's not Joshua who speaks up. It's Caleb, and he stands alone against the entire nation. Like uh, Athanasius, the old 4th century saint that I mentioned some weeks ago, who, when he was told uh, the, the whole world stands against you, Athanasius, who, who dearly and deeply uh, believed that Jesus Christ was God, said, then I stand against the whole world. That's Caleb. He didn't care what anyone else thought. He was going to believe God. God had said, you can take the land. And giants didn't matter. He knew that God was true to his, to his promises. But uh, the people shouted him down. In verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we. 
And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. That's not true. There are tribes mentioned there, the Amalekites, the Hittites, and others that were of normal stature. But they exaggerate here for uh, emphasis. And we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak came, uh, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so Israel was turned back into the wilderness, and for 38 years they wandered as nomads, broke up into separate wandering clans. And uh, for 38 years they waited while that generation died off. God said no one 20 or over, those of the generation that refused to go into the land, would be permitted to, to enter it. And uh, Caleb and Joshua were the only two who lived through that experience. They were the only senior citizens in the nation. At the end of 38 years, everyone from 20 and up had died off, so they were at least 20 years older than everyone else in, in, the, uh, in the nation. But there's no indication that Caleb ever fretted or stewed. He just kept waiting for the promise, because he knew that in time he would possess the land. Now let's turn back to, to Joshua, and I'd like to make some observations about this man. The first thing that I observed was the tenacity of his faith. He had a, a dogged endurance. He was determined to gain the possession even though there were difficulties and the possession might be delayed because he knew that delay is always a part of the process. And that's something we need to remember. God's Word is sure. We can count on it. It's certain. But He never promises to give us what He's promised to give us now. We may have to wait. And the real test of our faith is our capacity to endure, to do what we know is right even though we don't see the results of our righteous actions. As the author of Hebrews puts it, you have need of patience or endurance that after you have done the will of God, you will receive the inheritance. We want things right now. We want the promise now or better yet yesterday, but God says sometimes you have to wait. It delays. It's certain. We'll receive it either in this world or in the next. We can count on that. But delay is always part of the process. And as someone has put it, what is required is a long obedience in the same direction. I've been reading Eugene uh, Peterson's commentary on the Ascent Psalms, the Psalms from uh, 120 through 134. And in the introduction to his commentary, he writes, One aspect of the world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It's not it's not, it is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. 
In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God can be sold if it's packaged freshly, but when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians call holiness. So we need to learn the truth that Peter teaches us in his little epistle, that the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, will himself establish, strengthen, and settle you. The promise is certain, but it may not come tomorrow. It may not even come in this age, but God is true to his word. The second thing I observe about Caleb is the audacity of his faith. He was a sort of go-for-broke individual. I read this past week a story of C.T. Studd, who uh, was one of the Cambridge Seven, who turned his back on a great deal of wealth. He was raised in a home where there was a lot of affluence, comfort, and he gave away his family inheritance. And he went off to China to serve with China Inland Mission in uh, terribly primitive circumstances. When, and when asked why, he said, some like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue house within a yard of hell. Now that's the sort of uh, attitude that, that, uh, that controlled Caleb's thinking. He went for the highest and the best. He could have uh, retired as an old soldier on the Mediterranean coast in his chalet and taken life easy, but he wasn't content with that. He wanted the high places. He wanted the hazardous duty. And that ought to be our thinking as well. We ought to uh, assault in our own personal lives those uh, habits that long have dominated us. We shouldn't be intimidated by them. We all have areas of our life with which we've struggled for years and there seems to be no victory and we get discouraged and we turn back, but we shouldn't because God's promise is certain. In this age or in the age to come, we're going to be victorious. So we need to go for the high places or it may be your, your business, something, some problem in your business that you need to tackle that you've been afraid of or in your family life. Or it may simply be an urge to make a change of direction in your life and perhaps to go overseas in some sort of, of mission there, something that's plagued you, a desire that you've had and, and you just have not felt free because your roots are so deep, so deep and there seem to be some inhab inhibiting factors. And we need to understand that, that your vocation, the vocation you have right now, the so-called secular vocation that you uh, occupy, may itself be a call from God. That's what the term vocation means. And uh, if so, then that's the highest and best for you. But it may be that God is saying to you that you need to leave that secure place and, and go to some other place. Perhaps go overseas or invest your life in some other what would be for you more significant cause. If so, you need to do it. A number of years ago, Jack Huckstra came into my office and... Uh, he told me of his frustration. He'd been uh, working in a secular job for some years, and he was trained uh, as a Bible teacher and felt that that's where God wanted him to be. And yet there were so many problems. 
And uh, I said, well, Jack, what's standing in your way? So he began to list the things that concerned him. And right in the middle of, of the list, he said, well, now that I think about it, those are not really problems at all. If God wants me there, then he'll take care of those, those factors. And he has. As you know, he's in Manderson, Wyoming, now pastoring a church. It may be that God is urging you to, uh, to reach out in, within your sphere of influence. Perhaps it's the high school crowd here. It concerns me that, as far as I know, there is no ongoing evangelistic ministry among the high school crowd in this city. And very, very little Christian witness. And that's a great area of need. Or it may be among the singles community, or your business community, or your neighborhood, or down at the courthouse, or the racket club, or some other place, and you want to be used of God. Go for it. Venture yourself. Go for the highest and the best. That's what uh, someone has said puts the fizz in the Pepsi. That's what makes the Christian life fun and exciting. Uh, those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago heard Dave and Lissa Forey's story. They uh, saw a report in the Statesman of a number of students from Japan, cultural, uh, a cultural exchange with students from Japan. And they needed housing here in Boise. And so Dave and Lissa opened their home. And uh, they befriended these two girls and led both of them to Christ, sent them back to Japan, new creatures in Christ. And that's a great venture of faith. I think I mentioned several years ago a friend of mine who used to live in Laguna Beach, California, and he became concerned about the high school crowd in that community. And they were just a group of pagan kids without any Christian witness. And on his way to the office, he used to walk around the school and pray for those, for those kids that someone would reach them. And uh, one day it occurred to him that he knew a couple of high school kids, and as he describes them, they were both social basket cases. They didn't know anybody in school. Nobody knew them. But he invited them over to his house, and they began to study the Bible together. And they began to pray for their friends, and they started inviting some of their non-Christian friends. First, they had to befriend some, and then they invited them. And about a year later, he invited me to speak to that group, and there were 75 or 80 kids crammed into his living room to hear the gospel. And out of that, one of the kids who became a Christian led his father to Christ, who was the city manager of Laguna Beach, and it just opened up a door of ministry to Mike that went on for years and years. That was the only extracurricular activity in that school. That little Bible study was the only extracurricular activity in that school that was regularly scheduled on the school calendar. It had a tremendous impact on that, that group of kids. Now, it's that kind of audacity of faith that God calls us to, and that's what characterized Caleb. He wanted the highest and the best, and he simply would not be satisfied with anything less. And that's what kept him young and vigorous through those 45 years. Incidentally, I personally do not think that we Christians ought to retire in the sense that the world retires. That's self-indulgence. Somehow we have convinced ourselves that uh, after 45 years or so, we deserve some time for ourselves. And after all, we've wanted to fish and camp all of our life, and now we can take life easy and there'll be no demands upon us, and we can get away from it all and serve ourselves. You know what happens? Statistically, you won't live very long. 
And uh, if you do, your spouse will wish that you didn't. Because uh, you just grow up being a cranky, obstreperous old grouch. Jesus said that would happen. It's the one who tries to save his life who loses it. But it's the one who loses his life for my sake, he said, who finds himself. He says, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It abides all by itself, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So since self-indulgence will kill us, we ought to avoid it. And uh, though it, you may need to make some kind of mid-course correction in your life, and you may, it's certainly proper to retire from the vocation that you've had for years and do something else, but use it. Do something with it. You have a lot of time to serve. Some of you met Homer Kamalian, who was here last week, who um, retired after 45 years as a chemical engineer, and now he travels all over the country representing Christian Nationals Evangelism Commission, CNEC. And he gets a lot of time to fish, travels around in his van, he camps, but he goes from place to place, ministering to people, encouraging them, and his life is full. Vic Wetzel was here this morning. Vic and Dottie retired. He was an executive with Pennies here in Boise for a number of years. Left that organization in retirement. Now he's, he's working full-time with Overseas Crusades. And uh, told me just this morning that he's the minister of evangelism in his little church over in Oregon. Just having the time of his life. My own dad retired after 45 years and then began to put on video cassette a series of Bible studies. He completed them last year at age 84. And now those things are going all over the United States into, into prisons and other places. And the last time I talked to my father, he says, if Gabriel blows his horn, I'm not going. I'm having too much fun. <clears throat> and some of you know the Millen Ciphers who are doing the same sort of thing, just giving themselves in quiet service to the senior citizen uh, crowd here in Boise. And I'm convinced you'll live longer and you'll certainly enjoy your life more. And uh, that's what I believe put the bounce in Caleb's step and gave him the vigor and strength that he had at age 85. He said, I'm just as tough as I was when I was 40. The third thing I would say about Caleb is something of the humility of his faith. It may have bothered you in verse 12 to read uh, that perhaps the Lord would help him. There really is no way to translate around that problem. That's exactly what the Hebrew says. There's a note of contingency there. He wasn't sure. He might lose his life in this venture, but he knew that God would ultimately triumph. And that outlook on life, I think, keeps us from some of these too slick and too easy explanations of God's behavior. As C.S. Lewis puts it, you never know about God. We know that His triumph is ultimate. He's going to win. We're on the winning side. We've read the last page of the book. We know who's going to win. But we may lose our lives in the process. There are no guarantees in this life that things will run easy, that we'll have everything our hearts have ever desired in terms of material things or health. Caleb had no assurance that he would not lose his life in this project, but he was willing to die trying because he knew that ultimately God would triumph. 
in preparing for some of my Revelation messages, I read through, the again, the uh, last of the Narnian tales, the last battle, and what struck me this time was that when the children were overrun by the Calormenes and slain, and when the uh, dwarves turned against them, Aslan did not come to deliver them. In every other conflict, at the last minute, Aslan shows up like the cavalry, and, and they're saved. But in this final conflict, they lose their lives on the field of battle. But after it's all over, Aslan showed them the final triumph. And they realized that he had indeed, after all, won. So uh, even if you lose your life, you have to die for something. You might as well die for something worthwhile. Fling it away. Jim Elliot, as he wrote in his diary, had no assurance when he went to the Akas that he would survive, and he didn't. And Elizabeth Elliot, in commenting upon her return to that tribe with her children to minister to the people who murdered her husband, said she had no assurance that she would survive. She did. You never can tell about God. But you know he's going to win. He's triumphant. As Paul puts it, thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph, either in, even, either in this age or in the age to come. And there's one final note. In chapter 15, verse 13, in accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Enoch. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Shishai, Ahimon, Talmai, descendants of Anak. From there, he marched against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. So he took the city of the Anakites, and then he marched on to Debir, which he says was formerly called Kiriath Sefer. Kiriath means city, Sefer means books. This apparently was the depository of the Anakites' magic books, a sort of center of evil. And uh, so he marched uh, against that city. And uh, Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kirith Sefer. As Dan Brown said when we were discussing this passage last week, even though Caleb was a dog, his daughter was not. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. So Caleb gave his brother Ox out of him in marriage. And I suppose the conclusion we can draw is that not only do faithful men, faithful mountain men, men of faith, go for the highest and the best, but they encourage others uh, as well. There's one more thing I want to say about Caleb. Three times we're told in this passage that he wholly followed the Lord his God. He says that uh, of himself in verse 8, I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Moses said it of him in verse 9, and the author of the book of Joshua in, in verse 13 uh, lends his word of confirmation. He followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly, though, though he, not, he was not himself a Jew. Now, we're, we're intent, inclined to be intimidated by men of faith. And when statements like this are made, he followed the Lord wholeheartedly, we, we tend to shrink back because we think that's not me. There's so many times when I don't follow the Lord wholeheartedly. 
But Caleb was not a superman. The, the Hebrew idiom that's translated, he followed the Lord fully, might more accurately be translated, he filled himself to the full with God. You see, that's what makes you a man or a woman. It's not some natural ability that you have, some toughness, some strength that enables you to follow the Lord with all of your heart. What makes a man or a woman out of any of us is that we fill up our lives with God. We depend upon Him. We count on Him. We trust Him. We rely on Him. He's our strength. And that's what made Caleb the man that he was. Not that he was always full of faith. There were times, I'm sure, when he failed. He was human. But when he filled himself to the full with God, then he was able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that we can ask or think. Because God became his resource for living. The infinite God of the universe, who has all power at his disposal, was available to him to be the kind of man that he wanted to be. Remember the hymn that we sang earlier? He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. Every demand upon us is simply a, a greater demand upon Him. To added affliction, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's stand together. Father, we thank You for the, the noble example of this great man of faith. We, like, like Caleb, want the very best. We want the highest. And uh, we want the hazardous duty. And yet we shrink from it because we know that we're mere men or women. And yet we thank You that You're available to us to give us what we need to endure no matter what our circumstances may be. And uh, to be used by You to bring about your perfect plan in history. Thank you that we can be a part of that. And we give ourselves to you for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.